May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few weeks ago, a family came into church, you may be here today, um, for the first time, and came in a little bit after the service had started, and the children had already gone up to the Sunday school. Um, the parents sent their little boy upstairs to join the Sunday school, and they themselves came into the service. After a few minutes, Tony, my husband, who was sort of coordinating the service, thought he'd better go up and see if the little boy was all right and had found his way to Sunday school. When he went to the top of the stairs, there was a child standing with his back to the wall, too terrified to go in and join all the other children. So Tony acknowledged how difficult it is to be on the outside when everybody inside seems to be having fun and seems to know each other. So he said, let's go in together. And in they did. And the little boy was very happy for the rest of the morning. Many of us have had that experience here in some way or another, whether at church, whether somewhere else in our lives. And no doubt there are many people who feel like that about coming to church. They'd like to come, but everybody seems to know what they're doing and seems to know each other. They'd like to explore Christian faith, but they don't really know how to go about it. Our passage today looks at how Jesus responded to outsiders and gives us some guidance on how we might do the same. Just to put it in context, why do we even need to think about it? Well, depending on your definition of outsider, we have welcomed at least 300 people into one of our buildings at Christchurch this week who have never been into one of these buildings before. There's been an exceptional week, it has to be said. We've had a wedding, a funeral, two pancake parties, a film club, a nanny social, which Richard mentioned, and all our usual weekday activities. But even in a normal week, including Sunday services, of course, as well, we must welcome at least 30 or 40 new people every week into the building for something. So we do, as a church family, really need to learn how to welcome outsiders. And probably, if you call an outsider someone who's not yet a member of a worshipping community on a Sunday, whether here or in another church, there are about a 1,000 people who come into our buildings every week, whether they're hiring it for Alcoholics Anonymous, whether they're doing gym in it in St. Albans, or whether they're coming to the cafe. And all of those people, or nearly all, are welcomed by somebody in the church. Some of you are new here today, or perhaps you're not new, but you don't yet feel a member of the congregation. You might still feel that you are an outsider. But, as Richard, and as Richard said last week, we, are, we were in fact all outsiders. We were all outsiders of Jesus' love until he came and died. And through his death and resurrection, while we were sinners, still sinners, we have been brought inside. Inside the kingdom of God inside his promises, inside the family of the church. And it's from this perspective of forgiven sinners that we welcome others in. Those of you who have been here for the last few weeks know that we have been looking at Luke's gospel um, and the account of Jesus' life told by him. It's not a chronological account, and it contains a significant number of stories that are not told in other gospels, including the second story in our passage today. Luke was himself an outsider. He wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. And his gospel really emphasizes that throughout that Jesus came to save Gentiles, the outsiders, not just the chosen Jews. 
The two stories in our passage today have direct parallels with the stories that Jesus told outside the synagogue in Nazareth in chapter 4, just after he'd spelt out his mission. The widow of Zarephath and her son were starving, and they were saved from starvation only for her son to die. Elijah, the prophet, who was, must have been a useful house guest at this point, uh, was asked to do something about this, and he pleaded to God, and the son was raised to life. The second story that Jesus reminded them of was Naam, of Naaman, the commander in the Syrian army, who contracted, contracted leprosy and was told by Elisha to dirt, bathe in the dirty little Jordan in order to be healed. And you'll remember that after Jesus told these two stories, the crowd was furious and drove him out of the town. So let's look at these two uh, passages that we have before us today. The first one in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, is also told in Matthew uh, chapter 8, and is of a Gentile man, who might not necessarily have been a Roman, who was a centurion commanding about 180 to 100 men in a Herod Antipas' army. His highly valued servant is sick. Matthew tells us he was paralyzed and he was close to death. And he has heard of Jesus and knows that he's healing people. In Matthew's account, the centurion comes to Jesus himself. But here, Luke tells us that he sent some Jewish elders to petition on his behalf. The centurion was showing cultural sensitivity. He wasn't, didn't know Jesus personally. He recognized his Jewish heritage and he sends representatives of Jesus' own ethnic background to plead his case. Luke, the non-Jew, wanted to emphasize the centurion's non-Jewishness, and also the fact that there was respect here between the Jew and the Gentile, which would have been very unusual, and it would have caught the ears of his readers and hearers. The Jewish elders tell Jesus that the centurion deserves to have Jesus heal his servants because he loves their nation and has helped build the synagogue. It would have taken enormous courage and humility for the centurion to approach Jesus. He's used to being in control in his professional life, in his personal life. He's probably more used to giving support than he was to receiving it. But now he's desperate and he knows that he can't sort out the problem of his sick servant himself. So he comes to Jesus. I think we probably know quite a few people like that in our area of West London. Powerful, wealthy running a company, compassionate boss, generous with their donations to the building project, respectful, tolerant in our multicultural society, and completely self-sufficient until something happens that is beyond their control. At this point, some may reach out to Jesus. They may talk to a colleague or a friend or someone at the school gate who they know to be a Christian, They might come into the church in the week or on a Sunday. How do we respond to them? How did Jesus respond to this man? Jesus would have known how much it cost the centurion to swallow his pride and make this request. And he sets off to his house at once. There's no delay. There's no, I told you so. There's no, it serves you right for being self-sufficient. You shouldn't have ignored me for so long. Jesus is so ready to help this man. And then we see the centurion, I don't know whether it's that his courage failed him uh, or whether it's that um, he, he just was so humbled by the fact that Jesus had responded to his request. 
But he sends his friends to tell Jesus not to come to his house. Now, it's not because he doesn't believe that Jesus can heal. It's not, believe, not because he doesn't believe Jesus can fulfill his request. But something makes him uh, put, hold Jesus at arm's length then. Even though the Jewish elders had told Jesus that this man deserves his help, he clearly doesn't think he is worthy. I wonder why he felt unworthy. It doesn't say, but perhaps he'd watched the Jews and realized uh, he didn't share their faith, he didn't share their traditions. He didn't know scripture. He didn't lead a law-abiding lifestyle. He didn't have their sense of belonging and of being chosen. And maybe he could just thought, perhaps Jesus really can't come here. Although, as I say, he didn't have any doubt in Jesus' power. And I wonder what about the people that we meet. We're going to watch a little clip now, if the video works, um, of why reasons why people might not come and join us here in church. Here's a few reasons why people don't go to church. I can't come to church until I get my life together. Church is how I got my life together. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. All they care about is your money. They care about me, not about my money. some kind of dress code? Yes, the code is wear some clothes. Church, it just makes me nervous. I was nervous at first, and then I felt right at home. I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe. But you can still belong. Church is for wimpy girly men. You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't want me. If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't be worried. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist, a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. See, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. So please, come to my church. Where nobody's perfect. Where beginners are welcome. Where socks are optional, but grace is required. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And where it's okay to not be okay. Really. So whatever the reason that the centurion stopped Jesus from coming to his house, it was not because he doubted Jesus' power. In fact, if anything, he shows greater faith by saying Jesus could heal from a distance. And so how do we see Jesus respond now? Jesus is amazed at the, the centurion's faith. It's one of only three occasions in the Gospels where Jesus is described as being amazed. One is in the parallel account in Matthew, and the other is when he's amazed at lack of faith of his disciples in Mark chapter 6. As one commentator puts it, Jesus turns and issues his commendation. 
I have not found such faith, great faith, even in Israel. Statement is like a neon light. Here is faith that should be emulated. Here is trust, confidence, rest in the authority of God, and awareness of his plan. The Jewish nation and all others can learn from this outsider. Aware of Jesus' authority, the centurion has committed the well-being of his beloved son, slave, into Jesus' hands. Jesus commends the centurion's humility and his understanding of Jesus' authority. Such faith is exemplary. And what do we do when we see outsiders coming to see to Jesus, of expressing faith, putting their trust in Jesus? Are we as ready as Jesus was to see the good in them, to commend their faith and to welcome them in? I like the way that the Jews in this story allow, had obviously allowed the centurion to serve them. And that's something that we benefit from enormously here as a church. A couple of weeks ago, a man who comes in regularly to practice the organ at lunchtime gave a little recital and he invited his work colleagues and those of us who are here uh, serving on the team and other customers in the cafe uh, were able to enjoy his amazing music. This coming week, as Richard has already mentioned, there's a clothes swap that's organized not by us, but by someone who comes in here to the play group uh, week by week. And she's organizing a clothes swap in order to raise money for Emily, our lit partner in Uganda. So we see this high-ranking, professional, successful male foreigner coming to Jesus and Jesus welcoming his request and his faith and restoring the servant to health. On this occasion, Jesus was in the unusual position of being a responder. But in the second story we have here, he's very much the initiator. So let's look now at verses 11 to 17. As I mentioned earlier, this story is, the only, one, is only told in Luke, and it's one of three recorded incidences of Jesus raising someone from the dead, the others being his friend Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. Jesus goes to the small town of Nain, which is about six miles southeast of Nazareth, and comes across a funeral procession. Probably this only son of a widow had died earlier that day, and his body had been anointed to preserve it from decay and wrapped in a burial cloth and put on a plank for everyone to see. The man was definitely dead. He was definitely an outsider. His mother is weeping for the loss of her only child, It's very clear from the passage that she'll now have no means of economic support. Her husband has died, and so has her only son. So she's bereft not only of a son, but of any means to support herself and even sustain life. When the two groups, so the funeral procession and Jesus' group, meet at the city gate, Jesus is moved by her plight and tells her not to cry. Even with his evident compassion, This instruction might sound rather hollow, but for the authority that he has to change her circumstances. After talking to the mother, Jesus approaches the body of the dead son lying in his coffin. He touches the coffin, which would have rendered him ceremonially unclean, and tells the young man to get up. Because of Jesus' power and authority to heal, not just, well, not just to heal, but to, to overcome death, the dead man sits up and begins to speak. And as Jesus gives back the boy to his mother, the man to his mother, he not only has raised the boy to life, but he has actually really given back the mother her life. And who do we know, like this widow, distressed, maybe destitute, 
so weighed down by circumstances that they can't come to Jesus themselves. We see them on our streets. We see them as they come into our homeless shelter. Maybe the mentally ill. Maybe the lonely. But of course, they're not just people we see out there. They're people in our own families, our workplaces, maybe at the gym, maybe in the school playground. They may not be destitute, but they are still poor and oppressed, and they need us to take initiative like Jesus did here. They need us to take Jesus to them. Just this last Thursday, I met a woman whom I know slightly outside Sainsbury's. She told me a bit more of her story and of her struggles with eating disorder. She's the same age as me, and she's had an eating disorder since she was 11. She also suffers from OCD, among other things. She told me that she wanted to die, as it was the only way out of her suffering. She'd planned her suicide in the most horrific way, but wasn't able to go through with it. She told me that she pleased with God every night to take away her suffering. So I asked her if she believed in God, which might seem a slightly strange question when she just told me, and she said, no, I don't, but I don't know what else to do. And I said, well, I believe in God. And I believe that he can heal you and that he can restore you. And then I asked if she'd like me to pray for her. She said, what, here, now, out loud? I said, well, yes, if you don't mind. She said, no, I don't mind. So there between the market stalls just outside Sainsbury's, I prayed, crying out to God for her healing. It is the only thing. He is the only one who can save her. So after praying, then we talked a little bit more about how she could find faith in Jesus. And, of course, she was welcome to come here any time. As I left, she turned and smiled and she said, you've given me hope. At the end of the passage here, we read that the crowds were filled with awe and praised God. A very different reaction from that outside the synagogue at Nazareth when Jesus had talked of Naaman and the widow of Zarephath. I wonder why that was. I think it was because may have been that they'd now seen his healing in action. They'd seen his welcome in action, whereas before he was just getting going with his ministry. They recognized him as a prophet, and they recognized him as God who had come to help his people. So what else that hasn't already been said can we learn from these stories of how to welcome outsiders? I guess each of us, for each of us, it's worth reflecting who we see as outsiders uh, for ourselves, and that will be different for each of us individu- individually and also, of course, corporately. It might be people from different ethnic or religious backgrounds, different physical or mental ability or health, different family or employment status, different sexuality or educational attainment. It might be someone who's trying to find a new church. It might be a new next-door neighbor. It might be a homeless man who comes into the shelter. Could be anyone, of course, and everyone. But the central point that Luke seems to draw us to in this passage is is the welcome Jesus gives to those who come from outside belief, outside life even, in the case of the man he raised again. He shows us that welcoming to his kingdom is what really counts and transforms anyone and everyone from being an outsider to being inside God's kingdom and belonging to his family. 
How do we do that? Well, in practical terms, we can come to the Everybody Welcome course, which starts on Tuesday. That's another plug. Um, but of course, as we see Jesus here, both respond, sometimes he's responding and sometimes he's taking initiative. What might response look like in our situation? It might be sitting with someone while they eat their lunch in the cafe. It might be giving someone a large print Bible when they come into church because you realize that they have some difficulties in seeing. It might be taking time to listen to someone and pray with them at the end of a service. It might be taking time to try and answer their questions. It might be noticing the people who stand in the porch, of whom we have many, not quite sure whether they can come in, like that little boy I told of earlier. Or it might be taking initiative, or and probably, taking initiative and going out. Please don't think that me going, that praying on the high street with people I don't know very well is my normal way of doing things. It really isn't. But I was, I was so filled with compassion, with Jesus' compassion for that lady, that there, there didn't seem any other option, really. It might be that we meet people on the high road and can invite them to church, or invite them to Alpha, or invite them to a, a social event or a toddler group, or St. Andrew's Fellowship. But above all, we welcome people from the position of remembering that we were all at one time outside God's kingdom. For those of you who are here last week, Richard, you'll remember Richard said at the end, if you know Jesus, you carry around a beautiful cloak. And if you know Jesus, you know how to share that cloak. So we welcome people in the power of the Holy Spirit we offer compassion, grace, encouragement, and love. And we hope that in so doing, that the people of Chiswick will recognize that God has come to help them and will put their trust in him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you again for your welcome to us. Thank you that through your death and resurrection, we have been brought into your family. We pray for ourselves that you will enable us to welcome others in. We pray for those here today who feel on the outside, that they will know that you are so ready to welcome them. Father, we pray that as a church, we will offer your love, that we will make, we'll raise you high so that people don't just see us, don't see us being friendly and smiling, but they see you and they come to know you for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.